You're listening to a People of Note podcast, as heard on Classic 1027. Good evening, and welcome to People of Note on Classic 1027. I'm Richard Cock, and this program is broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8. And in it, I talk to someone who is a person of note, and we listen to music of their choice. And I'm very happy to tell you that my guest tonight is Peter Sullivan, who started life as a journalist. He's a former editor of The Star, former chairman of BirdLife, South Africa, and many other things which we're going to hear about as we go through the next couple of hours. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Richard. It's lovely to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and, I, and you've got a great choice of music, which is quite wide-ranging, I have to say, um, because I guess you enjoy listening to music as well. I love music, and I, and I love classic FM, or rather, what's it? 107, which I now have to call it. But I have been listening to it since the station started. It virtually is the only station I listen to. And it has uh, it has had such fabulous music and been such a big part of my life, actually. Were you ever anything of a musician yourself? I played the piano badly. I was, I was quite good at theory, strangely enough. When I passed my, sort of, I think it was grade 8 theory exam, I remember my teacher, who is Mr. Shepston in Bloemfontein. He was absolutely appalled, and he in fact phoned the examiner, and he said, my worst student has passed, and my best students have failed. All you have said is a mathematical exam. This is not a music exam at all, and slammed the phone down. And I said to him, am I your worst student? He said, oh, by far. <laughs> so I definitely am not a great piano player. But I love it. But you love music. And uh, when you say Bloemfontein, is that where you come from? Born and bred, yes. Uh, went to school there. Sort of only, <laughs> they say only crossed the Val River when I learned to read. And, uh, and then went to Wits. And what led you into journalism? Oh, uh, oddly enough, it was uh, a standard eight class and a hangover at eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and I told it, I told my, my pupils to please do work for the other teachers because I, uh, I couldn't teach them that morning. And I would read the newspaper instead. And when I read the newspaper, there was an advertisement for cadet reporters. And I said, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a reporter. I don't have to teach you bunch anymore. Oh, so you were going to be a teacher? I was a teacher, yeah. Okay. And... Uh, and then I said, oh, we haven't done a business letter. I better do a business letter with you. I said, this is how you do a business letter. I said, apply for this job of a cadet reporter. Give yourself any qualifications you like. You know, just This is how you lay it out in the old days. You had to lay it out in a specific way. And then they wrote such beautiful letters. I sent them all to the editor of the Rand Daily Mail. And I said, why don't you give one of my pupils a job in theory? So that they understand the reason they write these letters is not to get a 10 out of 10 and a gold star from me. And in fact, to get a job. And the news editor wrote back and said, would I come to see them? They'd like to do a little story. It wasn't the purpose. But anyway, I said, okay. And I went in. And then they offered me a job. And uh, <laughs> I remember asking what I would be paid. And they said, uh, what are you earning now? And I think I was earning 280 rand a month. And they said, we'll give you 230. I said, well, I mean, I, I didn't major in economics. But even that doesn't sound a good offer to me. And Raymond Lowe, who was then the editor, said, well, go and spend an hour in the newsroom and let me know whether you think it's more, in, more interesting than an hour in the staff room. So I did, and I sat in the newsroom, and it was just, 
humming and all sorts of things were happening and it was wonderful. And so I went back and said to the principal, yeah, I've been offered this job. And he wisely <laughs> said to me, you don't often get offered jobs in journalism, so take it. You can do it for four years and then you can come back to school and, and become a teacher and perhaps become a principal one day. But at least you'll have some outside experience and not just school, university, back to school. So that's what I did. And then after sort of three months in the job, I knew I would never want to do anything else. I just absolutely loved it. And I was I was quite good at it, I think. Yeah. Isn't that great that you, you found something that you really love doing? Because yeah. one hears so often about people who just work, you know, for the sake of working, the sort of golden handcuff story, yeah. uh, except they get paid lots of money and you, do, you weren't. <laughs> I wasn't. And, you know, I was, I was 22 and I still love it as much as I did yeah. then. I love writing. I cannot go away on a holiday without coming back and writing about it. So that love of writing and enjoying the journalism hasn't stopped. And I'm now 71. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, let's listen to your first choice of music, which is by Mozart, the great Wolfgang Amadeus. It's uh, part of his Sonata Number no. 10 in C. Keyboard music by the great Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Can I say something about that yes. piece of music? So when I was in Mogadishu, every night at about 10 o'clock, I would go to sleep. And that's the music that I would play. And I would play it every single night. I would put it on and I would listen to that particular piece of Mozart. I have no idea why it sort of just grabbed me, but it is the most beautiful sonata I think ever written. And why in Mogadishu? After I'd retired, the UN offered me a job in Mogadishu with, um, with the forces that were there, the, the AU forces. We were sort of, we were getting beaten up by Al-Shabaab on the radio and television and specifically in social media. And they needed somebody to really edit what was coming out of Mogadishu in the war against Al-Shabaab. And uh, they gave me 50 journalists and I went up. I was, I was the deputy head of the mission. The head was the, um, was the general who was, he was going to become a general, who was going to become the head of Kenya's armed forces. Um, but he tells he told me he got stabbed in the back, <laughs> as has happened, and he ended up in this job. He's a wonderful man, General Karanja. I loved him, and we had fifty journalists, and I was there for seven months, um, sort of in the MIA, as it's called, which just really stands for Mogadishu International Airport, but it's surrounded by a ring of steel. Of, I mean, twenty-seven thousand troops fighting against Al Shabaab. Uh, trying to create a viable government in Somalia. And they're still there, I guess. They are unfortunately still there, yeah. and the government is still, it's there and functioning, but they continue to lose people at a rate of almost 10 a day. People get murdered and killed, and um, it's really quite a depressing place. I wonder if there's an end to all those struggles, like in Somalia... Afghanistan, Iraq, they just go on and on and on. It's just unbelievable. It well, really I mean, is. What is your, because you've got a sort of overview of all these things from your years in journalism. Mm. I mean, I, I won't make myself very popular by saying the basic cause is religion. And it is because people believe in different aspects of different religions. So 
you have Islam, but the fight in Mogadishu is between Islam and Islam. I mean, it's not between Islam and Christianity. In exactly the same way as the fight in Ireland was between Christian and Christian. And they have the priests, as it were, or the imams, man, managed to ferment people into believing one aspect of the religion. What actually happens on the ground is that the priests and, and the elders, the village elders, want to keep their village intact so that they can extract taxes and so that it's rent-seeking mostly and that they continue to get the taxes and the government doesn't. But when you have no government, it means you can't put a road between A and B. You can't put water between A and B. You can't have telephones. You can't, I mean, all sorts of things just don't happen that we think are normal. Because it's just like a fragmented society of villages, really. And the problem is keeping it fragmented is what the Al-Shabaab is all about. Because if you keep it fragmented, you can seek the rents from those places. And trying to unite it into a single government, we would think everybody wants, and everybody does want, unless they are told, God says, you must not associate with those people. Well, and your next choice of music is uh, about another place that goes on having problems, Jerusalem. Uh, is this the the uh, famous Jerusalem that's sung at the last night of the proms? Indeed, it is. Here it comes. That was Jerusalem by Charles Hubert Parry, with words by William Blake. And actually, I have to say that uh, when... Almost whenever I've done Last Night of the Proms, I've seen you sitting in about row 10, I think. <laughs> so you obviously enjoy going to concerts as well. I love I love your concerts, and I mean, I go to every single one. I, uh, I do remember coming to the Last Night of the Proms late. We thought it started at 8 o'clock, and it started at half past 7. And suddenly we were late, and as I walked in... You stopped the concert. <laughs> sort of watched me walk with my then girlfriend, sort of <laughs> very shamefacedly, until I took my my seat in row ten. Indeed. <laughs> well, I hope you learned a lesson. Said <laughs> so we did. We were never late again. <laughs> it is very rude to be late, but I mean, it's yeah. a, it was a genuine mistake. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it had some effect because that's that's wonderful. But um, so. Let's go back a bit in your life, because you were in Mogadishu. You started life as a journalist. I started life as a teacher. Really. As a teacher, yes. <laughs> a teacher, a then journalist. a journalist, yeah. yes. And when did you sort of get more onto the management side of things? Because obviously you did at some stage. Yeah, so, you know, I, I was never ambitious. It's a funny thing to say, but I really was never ambitious. I just loved the job that I was doing. But somehow I got promoted. I went down to... Um, the Mercury, I worked in, in Durban, and then, to, then Port Elizabeth sent me to Parliament. And from Parliament, I came back as deputy editor of the, of the Saturday paper. Um, and then from there to Pretoria News as a deputy editor there. And when I was a deputy editor there, the management of the star, effectively, um, of, in, of the newspaper group at the time, which was the Argus Group, asked me to go into management. And I said, I don't like management. I like journalism. And they said, well, just come into management. Then you deal with the whole pie instead of just a slice of the pie. And you'll really enjoy that. Journalism is just a slice of the publishing pie. 
But I didn't trust them quite wisely. I said, in that case, give me a letter that says, after three years, I can go back to journalism, which they did. After three years, they said, there you are. You see, you want to stay in management, don't you? I said, no, I want to go back. <laughs> and then I went back as a deputy editor. Well, not as deputy editor of the Star, but as editor of the Daily Star, almost a, a job they created for me under the then editor-in-chief, who was Richard Stain. And I became editor of the Daily Star and then became editor of the Star uh, when Richard left. And then after I'd done that for about five years or six years, they made me group editor-in-chief of all 18 newspapers at that stage, um, which wasn't as enjoyable as being editor of the single paper. Yeah. I mean, I really liked that. And what has happened in the newspaper world now? Because newspapers have changed dramatically over the past let's say, 10 years. Yes, it's like asking you what's happened in the music world over yeah. the last 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we used to have records that we played. Yeah. And, I mean, then we went from records to digital, and then digital took off and went into cell phones, and, I mean, and now everything's on YouTube. I mean, the world is so different as to how you access music. And newspapers, I'm afraid, are like the old records that you used to have and uh, they are really slowing slowly not i wouldn't say dying out but they're diminishing are they going to die out do you think i don't think so i mean i, I in the same way as i don't think orchestras are going to die out orchestras will still be there but run in a very different way and i think newspapers will be there but will have to become more parochial less international news because unless you give people analysis they already know that news. I mean, there was a huge blast in Beirut. We all know that. It doesn't help for this morning star to tell you there was a huge blast in Beirut because most people will have discovered that some other way. So they'll become more parochial, tell us what's going on in Johannesburg. But it's also about the interpretation of events because when you read an op-ed page giving you different viewpoints, this is an important part of deciding what's going on and how to deal with it. You know, it's, it's not just the facts, but interpreting those facts. And we perhaps we don't interpret things so much anymore. Well, Richard, you're showing our age here because <laughs> you can get that same op-ed page on your phone. Yeah. So you don't need the newspaper. What you need is, is somebody to edit what's happening in the world and to tell you what is important, what's interesting, what's amusing, um, what's entertaining what's educating. And I think that function will move more towards cell phones um, rather than anywhere else. And actual physical newspaper, I get it every morning. I sit down, I read it in the sun, and I have a cup of coffee, and I absolutely love it. And I bemoan the fact that it's not going to be there. But I also miss the old vinyl records, you yeah. know. I don't know whether it will continue to be able to do that. People will get that information, what you're talking about. They will get the, the op-eds, but they'll get it in a different form. Your next choice of music is Beethoven. And when we've played Beethoven, I just want to find out, because your choice of music is quite wide, but I do see three choices of Beethoven, whether this is a favorite of yours. It's the piano concerto number two, and it's the first movement. That was music by Beethoven, the piano concerto number two, and that was the first movement, the choice of Peter Sullivan, who's my guest in People of Note. He was uh, the former editor of The Star, amongst other things. Beethoven, a favorite of yours? Well, I think you should blame Rodney Trudgeon, actually, because during this lockdown, 
we looked at Rodney Trudgeon's book of concert notes. And my girlfriend and I decided that we would watch on YouTube. I've got a beautiful big television. And we would start at the beginning of the book and go through it. And, of course, Beethoven's right at the top of the book. And we went through every single piece of Beethoven. And, I mean, it is just such amazing, wonderful music. He just, everything he wrote was just so beautiful. So right at the moment inside my head, there's a lot of Beethoven. I find it very difficult to say this is my favorite music because it's the music I've just listened yeah. to that becomes my favorite. I mean, I, I'm, uh, I'm so Catholic, I think, in my tastes that I, I like everything. But you obviously listen to quite a lot of music. Oh, I do. I yeah. do listen to music. My, um, at home, the sort of radio stays on all the time. When I write, I like to have the radio on. Some people like silence. Um, I don't. I enjoy having the radio on as long as it's playing classical, mostly classical music. I'm, uh, I'm not too keen on the pop music. <laughs> I, do, I remember, was it Vittoria de los Angeles who was asked whether, I think by one of our reporters, whether she liked pop music. And she said, pop music? And he said, popular music. And she said, oh, yes, I often go home and listen to a bit of Strauss and Tchaikovsky. I mean, I do enjoy that. <laughs> yeah. I enjoy more popular music than Victoria de los Angeles. But I mean, <laughs> I do like classical music. Now, one of the things you've uh, done also uh, more recently is to collect a few newspaper buddies and go cycling. That you have to blame James Clark. Uh, so James went off. He hadn't been on a bicycle for 40 years. And he climbed on a bicycle and went with his daughter across down the Danube, as he said. He was actually up the Danube. But um, then the next year he decided to invite a few of us editors and, uh, and six of us set off, which then became known as the Tour de France instead of the Tour de France. And uh, we did it for 10 years and, and a different country each year. Um, at one stage, I went to Beijing also for the UN for a month, and I had to delay going there because, <laughs> because I had to go on the Tour de France. And I wrote to the editor of the Wall Street Journal, who was going to have me to dinner in Beijing, and, uh, and I said to him, look, I mean, we're, we're doing the cycle tour. It's called the Tour de France, but I described what we did and so on. And he wrote back and he said, it doesn't sound so much like cycling as wobbling from pub to pub. And I thought, he nailed it exactly. I mean, you can see why he became an editor. But you've done it also not only in Europe, but here. You've been through the Karoo, I think. Yes, we've done a lot of David Southies. Uh, he's, he has trips in the Karoo, um, great Karoo cycling. He and I sat at dinner one night, and he said that he could take us cycling in the Karoo for, I think it was 5,000 rand. and We'd just been quoted 15,000 rand. And so then we worked out how we could do it. And the Southies, which I didn't know at the time, own half the wretched Karoo. I mean, wherever you go, there's a Southie farm. So we went from Southie farm to Southie farm to Southie farm. And for my 65th birthday, I invited 12 friends to come. And everybody accepted. And we all went cycling for a week. And since then, that same group have gone cycling in Spain. And we've been to the Karoo twice. And in two weeks' time, we hope to be going to see the flowers in Kamiskruen and... Uh, those places down there, wherever, wherever the flowers are, yeah. Springbok and um, um, also, on also on bicycles. Cycling all around. Yeah. But of course, at the moment, we're under lockdown. So whether we'll be allowed to 
traverse the um, the provincial boundaries or not depends on Uncle Cyril, I suppose. Yeah. Gosh, uh, so you've done quite a lot of uh, international travel then, and your next choice is, in fact, the international, which is not quite in about international travel. But let's play it, and then you can tell us why you chose it. Well, the international is the sort of Communist Party's rallying cry. And I've always been a little bit of a sort of secret fan of communism. I'm not a communist. I'm very much a capitalist. But there are things about communism that are good. And I think in this country, communism was demonized and uh, and shouldn't have been. We now, of course, have a communist party that's free to say what it wants. And that's the way it should always have been. And the international is a beautiful song. And I thought it's quite nice to remove the demonization from a song like that, as was, in fact, our own national anthem at one stage was demonized by the security police. And I went to Russia for five weeks and I mean, I, I listened to it quite often. And uh, they played it on sort of state occasions there. Um, And I like it. Well, I suppose you, as a journalist, you've been in the business of getting news to people, uh, talking about demonizing things. You've been in the business of getting news to people rather than hiding news from them. And you must have had to deal with some of that problem while you were editor, I'm sure. and, And as a journalist, you must have dealt with people who are trying to stop you saying things. Every day, all day, that's exactly what you do deal with. I mean, you you deal with people trying to get things into the newspaper and people trying to stop things getting into the newspaper. But of course, during the apartheid years, it was much, much worse. And in fact, there were innumerable laws that stopped us from putting stuff in the paper. And I mean, Harvey Tyson and I used to giggle in the morning as we sort of found our way around the laws. You weren't allowed to publish that there'd been a riot. In fact, journalists, by law, had to walk away from a riot. So we used to publish little blank things in the paper. Just We would say there was, a, there was trouble in Eloff Street and then leave eight paragraphs blank. And at the top of the paper, we'd say, if you see any blank spaces in the paragraph, please note we are not allowed to report riots. So clearly you were reporting a riot. Then they banned us from using blank spaces. So then we turned the spaces pink. Right? And then they banned us from doing that. So then we wrote... There was some trouble in Eloff Street. Mary had little lamb. <laughs> its fleece was white as snow. Mary, and we'd put it at the top. If you see a nursery rhyme, it probably indicates there was a rhyme. So, I mean, but we kept on doing that, and we were very quick to change what we did, whereas they had to gazette everything, as they do at the moment under lockdown. They have to gazette everything. We could just change the next day. And we used to have great fun doing it. But, I mean, of course, what we were talking about was incredibly serious stuff. And uh, and they they tried their best. some extent, you know, that old National Party, as disgusting as their policies were, they obeyed the law themselves. And they created laws in Parliament, which they were pretty obedient to. They created some terrible laws. But nonetheless, we could fight them in the courts and we could we could fight them every day in the paper. Harvey Tyson said to me, you can break the law four times a day, but not more than that. Your next choice is by Johann Sebastian Bach. It's the first movement of the Bach double violin concerto. Uh, Bach is one of my favorites, and this is particularly one of my favorites. That was the first movement of the Bach double violin concerto in D minor, the choice of Peter Sullivan, who's my guest in People of Note, former editor of The Star, uh, and also uh, a former chairman of BirdLife South Africa. 
Yeah, the, uh, the, the chairman before me came to see me when I was group editor-in-chief of independent newspapers, and he came to my office with two other people, and they spent sort of half an hour talking about birds, and I had just become a bird watcher, and I was very interested. I hadn't joined a bird club. And at the end of it, I said to him, his name was Jan, and I said, Jan, what are you, why are you here? He said, well, we want a donation from you. I said, what kind of a donation? And he said, well, like 5,000 rand or, a, you know. I said to him, you just wasted my time. You should be asking for 500,000 rand. I mean, this is a big corporation. You can't go around asking people for small amounts. Or you should have asked me for a full page or something. Get out of my office. This is just nonsense. I was actually quite irritated. And he phoned the next day and said, you had a very big mouth yesterday. He said, now I'm inviting you to join the, the board of, of uh, BirdLife, which didn't have a board at that stage. It had a, uh, I can't remember what it was called, but it had this huge body of about 35 people, you know, yeah. that ran it, which, I mean, was utterly impossible. So I joined that body, the governing body, and... Um, and after two years, they made me chairman. <laughs> and then we changed. We removed that rather sort of um, uncontrollable body and created a proper board. And 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 when I when, when I became chairman, I mean, bird life was a million rand in the red. And I discovered that people just went and did all sorts of projects and then looked for the funding afterwards. And I said, well, that's going to stop right now. You will not do anything unless it's funded before you go out into the field with your binoculars and start trying to sort out the birds. And I was very lucky in that I appointed um, Mark Anderson as um, as our chief executive, and he just works from the minute he wakes up in the morning till midnight, never stops. He's an absolute dynamo, great at raising money, and is a, he's an ornithologist as opposed to a bird watcher like myself, and he's been wonderful for bird life. And uh, birds have actually become a big thing. Uh, birding tourism is a big thing. And that's been in the last maybe 25, 30 years. Yes. Yeah. So the Americans told me that uh, they spent $48 billion a year on golf, $52 billion a year bird watching. I couldn't understand that. I wrote back and I said, but I play golf, which is very expensive. I mean, it costs me a lot of money. And I go, bird watching costs me nothing. And they wrote back and they said, most American homes have one set of golf clubs and four sets of binoculars. <laughs> and they include driving and the costs of driving to go bird watching. And of course, in America, it's become very big and in South Africa as well. And I'm hoping that it gets bigger. Our birds are wonderful. We have sort of 860 birds. They're easy to see. They, uh, we can identify all of them with binoculars as opposed to South America, where you have to sort of shoot them and put them under a microscope to say which hummingbird it is. You know? And we have virtually free access to almost all of our birds. And uh, even here in Joburg, uh, my wife and I were saying on Sunday, I think it was, how many new birds are coming in here now as Joburg becomes more filled with indigenous trees and things. It's amazing what's happening. Yes, well, I mean, it is the biggest uh, afforested city in the world, biggest city forest, I suppose. And, you know, we, when I grew up and used to come here from Bloemfontein, there were no hardy dars. We used to have to go to Durban to see a hardy dar. And uh, now, then the hardy dars came here because of the big drought. 
But if you look at the rains that we've had this year, I mean, there's tons of water which birds really need. There's tons of shelter which birds need. There's tons of food everywhere. So naturally, it's going to attract the birds. We're very lucky. Yeah, we certainly are. Your next choice is uh, the beautiful uh, Silver Moon from Ruzalka by Dvorak, uh, the song based on the Little Mermaid story, actually, but a beautiful piece sung by René Fleming. That was René Fleming singing Song to the Moon from Rusalka by Dvorak. Did you see her when she came to South Africa? Unfortunately not. I, uh, I was away. <laughs> what a pity, because yeah. it was a great concert. <laughs> I'm sure it was. <laughs> and actually, it's amazing. We've had incredible people visiting South Africa. We, we often think of ourselves being stuck down here at the end of Africa and nobody comes, but actually we've had amazing artists visiting. I'm sure you've seen some of them. I'm sure I have. Yeah. Uh, I've just I've been very fortunate in my life in that I've I've seen such wonderful shows and concerts and people. So tell us a bit about Davos because Davos and things like Davos often put on concerts as part of their entertainment. They do. So every year a country puts on the concert at Davos. Um, but I mean Davos, you know James Clark accuses me of name dropping all the time, so I'm very scared of dropping names. But when you go to a place like Davos, you just do meet so many incredible people that you want to tell everybody about. You know, I met Benjamin Zander and was um, sort of instrumental in bringing him here because he did a wonderful concert there. I had lunch with, uh, with Bill Gates uh, every year for about five years. And Bill Clinton and um, <laughs> I got to know Clinton quite well. So there were only like he used to have five of us and then talk for two hours, you know. And, of course, President Mandela and uh, um, and I once had the king, currently King Philippe of, um, of Belgium, who was then Prince Philippe. He came and sat next to me because I was the moderator for a session on is obsession always a bad thing? That was the name of the session. It was a lunch. And I had Steffi Groff sitting next to me. And this guy came and sat, and I said, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a prince. I said, well, what do you actually do? He said, well, I suppose I help the government, you know. I said, it doesn't sound like you do much. I was very rude, I think. Anyway, he said to me, oh, I'm coming to South Africa. And I said, well, come and have lunch at the Star. We used to have very enjoyable lunches at the Star with celebrities who arrived. And, uh, and in fact, he came and uh, thing. But, yeah, I met great people. Uh, yeah. Steffi Graf's story was very interesting. You know, she uh, she had been number one tennis player in the world, 187 weeks in a row. I think she was eventually like 370. She was number one. Um, and she wanted to hit a ball against a wall on the day that she made the Wimbledon final. I think she was 17 years old. And her coach wouldn't let her. He said to her, no, professional players don't hit the ball against a wall. You need to play against somebody else this morning before your final. So she fired her coach, <laughs> hired a new coach on the day of her first final at Wimbledon and said to him, I want to hit a ball against a wall. And he went and asked the people at Wimbledon, they said, there are no walls. <laughs> so they had to go to a school and she hit the ball against the wall and she won the final. But she said she, her home life had been unhappy and whenever she wanted to get away from the fighting, she used to go and hit a ball against a wall and it just calmed her down. And that's what she needed to do before Wimbledon. So for her, that obsession was not a bad thing. So that was oh, that was the story of the obsessions. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And your next choice is Still Life at Penguin Cafe. This was a ballet. Uh, and we'll talk about ballet after this. Maybe you're a ballet lover as well. Love it. Let's listen to the music first. Still Life at Penguin Cafe, composed by Simon Jeffs. The choice of Peter Sullivan, my guest in People of Note. That's the program you're listening to on Classic 1027. It's broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8. And as you notice, I'm talking to someone of note because that's what this program is all about. And it happens regularly on a Sunday. And we often get feedback. So if you want to write in, please do. I pass your letters on to Peter or your emails. It's uh, My email is my name, R-C-O-C-K, R-C-O-C-K, at iafrica.com. And if you want to write, please do, and then I'll pass them on to Peter. Do you have a, a website? Are you into such no, things? No, 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 I don't no. have a website. No. But people can contact me. It's I, my email is pjsullivan.star at gmail.com. So... I've had that email for a long time. So the star isn't because I think I'm a star. It's because I was at the star. There are PJ Sullivan dot, dot star, star at gmail.com. At gmail.com. Yeah. Then you can contact him yourself. And uh, ballet, you want ballet. to talk about? Yes. So when I was about 12, I went to my first ballet in Bloemfontein, which I think was the Nutcracker, and I just was entranced. And since then, I've, I've watched ballet all around the world. And Still Life was produced here in Johannesburg, but they changed the music, and they used Mzi Kumalo's music, which was so beautiful. I wrote afterwards and tried to get the music, but they couldn't give me a copy. And uh, nonetheless, this, the one that I played now is a sort of old original Still Life, but the one that was played in Johannesburg was just so beautiful, and you had these penguins rushing across. And then I, I, I watched ballet in Moscow, and I watched it in St. Petersburg. Although when I went there, it was Leningrad, and saw the uh, Malinki ballet. So Bolshoi simply means big, and Malinki means small. And we watched ballet on those white nights. They call them white nights in St. Petersburg, because although the sun sets at about 9 o'clock, it stays light until midnight. And everybody walks around, and I mean, you come out of this ballet. You go in at 8, you come out at sort of 11. And it still looks like the sun has just set. Beautiful. Have you got a, a list of places you still want to visit? Or do you travel a lot? Still? I do. So I've been yeah. to 70 countries. Generally, I've tried to stay one country ahead of my age. Um, I ha have to find another one quickly. Uh, so the last one that I went to was Beirut. Um, my daughter and uh, my daughter married a guy from the UN. And uh, he got posted to Beirut, so she went there as well, where she was writing for The Guardian. Um, there was a big blast in Beirut, but luckily they are now back in Sydney, where she's writing for The Guardian. But we went to Beirut for my 70th birthday, so that I could be with that daughter and my other daughters in London, working for the British Museum. She's an artist, and, uh, and so the two daughters and their boyfriends or husbands arrived and we all were in Beirut for my 70th birthday, which was wonderful. When it was calm and peaceful, one hopes. It was indeed calm yeah. and peaceful. <laughs> yeah, because that, uh, that blast recently was certainly something else. So you, you've had a little list of places that you wanted to visit. I want to go to Croatia. I mean, there are places in Russia that I still like to go to. I mean, it, it's very difficult for people to understand the size of Russia and Siberia. And, the, you know, if Siberia was a country... 
it would be, I think, the second biggest country in the world, just Siberia. That's one province. I mean, it is absolutely enormous. And I was fortunate enough to be taken around Siberia by the chief botanist of of Russia. Um, I was there on a visit which was kind of organized between the South African government and the Russian government. And it was very, very complex, but nonetheless went for five weeks, enjoyed it immensely, went to the forest, saw the birds, saw the ballet. I mean, I loved Russia. It's a, it's a lovely country. You haven't done the Trans-Siberian Railway. I have. So I you went have? to. Yeah, I haven't done the whole thing. It's yeah. uh, it's seven days. I mean, it's quite interesting, Richard. I mean, do you know how many blue trains we have? No. Three, right? One goes up to Joburg, one goes down to Cape Town, and there's one in reserve. And I wondered how many Trans-Siberian trains there are. Any guesses? No. Sixty-four, because there's one leaves every eight hours. Yeah from both sides, from Vladivostok back to Moscow and the other way around. And Vladivostok, oddly enough, is closer to Cape Town than it is to Moscow. <laughs> so for seven days you have these trains going every eight hours. Um, but I went to a little place, not a little place, a place called Novosibirsk, exactly the same size as Johannesburg. That's why I wanted to see it. Founded in the same year as Johannesburg. And it's where the Trans-Siberian Railway crosses the river. And that's why it was created as a, as a city. And in Novosibirsk, where they asked whether I would like a hot water hotel, and I said yes, but I arrived, and I mean, the water was absolutely freezing. I went down to reception with my tiny little towel around me and said, the water is cold. And, uh, and the lady in reception said, yes, but it's summer. <laughs> I said, but I ordered a hot water hotel. And she said, but it's summer. I said, how long is summer? She said, two weeks. <laughs> During those two weeks, there's no electricity in the whole of Novosibirsk, which is the size of Johannesburg, because they have to redo all the roads, because they've all broken up because of the icy winters. The cold and the wet, yeah. So these are certainly places that you've had on your list. I have a little list is your next choice. Gilbert and Sullivan from Mikado. I noticed two choices from Gilbert and Sullivan. The other one is three little maids from school. So you were, <laughs> did you ever perform in Gilbert and Sullivan when you were at school, perhaps? No, no. Although um, uh, <laughs> Darby Chamberlain in, in uh, Pretoria always makes us sing at BirdLife board meetings. We'd have to sing the Mikado afterwards or we'd have to sing something. Um, but my mother used to like Three Little Maids of School, and she was one of three daughters, and the three of them used to sing that all the time. So it sort of yeah. comes back to when I was a small child, and I could remember my aunts and my mother prancing around singing Three Little Maids from School, are we? Yeah, well, we've had Darby as a guest on this program, uh, and he talked about Gilbert and Sullivan um, and his also his love of music and of birds. And so. did you manage to stop him from singing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I can't remember whether he sang or not. But here come the three little maids from school, the choice of Peter Sullivan, my guest in People of Note. Three Little Maids from School by Gilbert and Sullivan, and as I mentioned, the choice of Peter Sullivan, my guest in People of Note. One of the things you've done also is to do uh, political tours. Just tell us a bit about that. Yeah, there's a guy from the New York Times, Nicholas Wood, and he phoned one day to ask whether I would be prepared to take people around South Africa on a political tour. 
and uh, and it sounded intriguing to me. It was at the time when Zuma was president, and uh, Kandler had just blown up. And so I said, sure. And then he said, well, would I plan it as well? So I planned the tour. We started in Durban, and well, we actually started near Belita, and um, at Prince's Grant. I thought it would be nice to stay on a golf course at the sea instead of at some five-star hotel. And then we went to Nkandla and had tea with the president's wife, and we had uh, and and with the councillors. And um, Nkandla is quite an interesting town, besides the fact that Zuma built his home there. Because it has 26 councillors, 13 of them were IFP, and 13 of them were ANC. So it's difficult to find a mayor. And yet it, they work very well together. And then we went to hospitals and we went to all sorts of places in KwaZulu-Natal, to the battlefields, and then to Johannesburg, across the Drakensberg, and uh, we were given lunch at the um, at Johannesburg Stock Exchange by... Nikki, who was then the uh, chief executive, went to the Constitutional Court, flew to Cape Town, had dinner with Helen Ziller, and generally ended up with um, Cato Regan, who was then deputy um, head of the Constitutional Court. And, uh, I mean, this is a bit of sort of <laughs> self-praise, I suppose, but she asked everybody, did they have a good tour? And one of the ladies, who was very interesting, she was 40, and she had been a nurse but she'd got tired of doctors, she said, telling her what to do. So at the age of 40, she enrolled to become a doctor and became a doctor and ended up the head of a hospital in Australia. And she said to Kate, she said, yeah, well, I've been, I've been wondering what to say because I knew you were going to ask me this question. And I think I'll just tell the truth. This has been the best week of my life. <laughs> so that was... How nice. That yeah. was really nice. Yeah. And since then, I've done about eight or nine of them. Uh, people from overseas who want to come... Not to do the sightseeing, but to meet interesting people, I suppose, in politics. Well, and I suppose that's when you talked about Davos, that's really what you do at Davos, is to meet people, break down walls and talk to people. Yes, I was very fortunate in that a friend of mine became the sort of Africa, the head of Africa in Davos. And he, Heiko Alfelt, used to use me a lot as a moderator. And I, be, I became the moderator for a lot of sessions of pre presidents and prime ministers. In fact, one of them said that I was known as the shut-up prime minister because I used to say to prime ministers, shut up now, you've spoken enough. Um, I've always, I've been lucky in that I've always seen presidents, prime ministers and other people like you, everybody as being equal. I've yeah. never had this great fear or, or, you know, of anybody, whether they're businessmen or, or whether they're the cleaner, because they, they are the just to me, normal people you know? like us, yeah. Exactly. They are normal yeah. people like us. And I've always got on very well with them. And so in Davos, I did a lot of that moderating. And so are these tours still going on here now? There are. You know? one, one was scheduled for December. Past or coming? Coming. 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 Yeah. No, I did a couple last yeah. year. And one's for December. But I doubt anybody will yeah. be coming. What do you think is going to happen? I politically? Mean, that's, no, no, not politically. I'm talking about, you know, with the, the, virus. the virus, yeah. I think we'll get over it, Richard. I think they will develop a, uh, um, what's the, a vaccine. vaccine. I think a vaccine is coming. And once we have the vaccine, it is going to be more like ordinary flu. We may have to have the vaccine more than once a year. I have the flu vaccine every year. I mean, I, 
I had my heart valves repaired in 2000. So it's now 20 years my heart's been fine, but I mean two valves broke and they had to repair them. Because of that, I have, I have the flu vaccine every year. And we will all have to have that vaccine. One of the problems at the moment is they say, if you have the vaccine at the moment on the trials, if you're the third time, you have very bad consequences. So we'll see. But I, we'll get over it. We're going to get on to the politics in a moment, but here's uh, Bach Toccata. This is from the famous Toccata and Fugue. We're just going to hear the Toccata, and I'm not sure who's playing it. Do you know who's playing it? No, but it's, it's a wonderful piece for organ. Johann Sebastian Bach's Toccata from the Toccata and Fugue in D minor, the choice of Peter Sullivan, my guest in People of Note. That's the program you're listening to on Classic 1027. He was someone who had to deal with local politics in Leipzig, city councillors who were not supportive of him. Uh, we have to deal with politics in South Africa, which is a complicated story. But maybe it's not complicated for you because you like to tell people to shut up when the time comes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't tell them to shut up about the current politics. I mean, uh, our politics at the moment is fraught as it always has been. I remember the Reverend Alan Hendricks in Parliament saying it was fraught. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, South Africa is always, I think, as Jan Smuts said, you know, it's always is never as bad as you think and never does as well as it should be. Never is as good as you think either as it's going to be. We will get through the politics. Uh, I I used to write bef in, in before the election in 1994, People used to say, you want to give everybody the vote or you're mad, it's going to result in chaos and it'll be one man, one vote once, and you know, as though they were the first to have invented that phrase. And I would say, we will have 30 years of chaos. And after 30 years of chaos, things will start to settle down. And that doesn't, doesn't just come from me thinking that. If you study 48 countries where you've had a kind of revolution away from a, a, an oligarchic system, you will find it takes 30 years, except in India where it took 40 years. But at the end of that 30 years, things settle down. Well, we're in, we're in our 26th year, I think, so in four years' time, I'm hoping things will start to settle down. But I said, yes, the ANC will come into power, and it will stay in power for at least 30 years. Ex expect that. But after that, you have a new generation that starts to become the majority, and they no longer have those loyalties. And the loyalty to the ANC is very much like the loyalty to Manchester City. doesn't matter if they play badly. doesn't matter if they even get relegated from the first league. People still stay loyal to Manchester City. They don't change. People aren't going to, the current group, people our age, are not going to change from the ANC. But young people coming through are going to change. And who knows what lies ahead. Well, and it's, it sort of feels as though it's starting already. Exactly. So yeah. if you look at the old United Party, it had to unite a whole lot of factions. Even more, the, the National Party, it took 32 different parties to get together to form the new National Party that took power in 1948. 32 different parties. And if you, if you imagine trying to unite just two Afrikaner parties, you can imagine how difficult it is. The Afrikaners by nature want to split everything. I mean, my grandfather was an Afrikaner, so I'm a 10th generation South African. So he was an Afrikaner from the Karoo. And I mean, in our family, 
they fought, two sisters fought about whether we arrived in 1698 or 1702. But I mean, that fight caused a major split, not just caused a little disagreement over what's the difference between 1698 yeah. and 1702. No, no, no. I mean, this was like a major problem. And, uh, and to unite 32 parties then to create a national party that won in 1948, somebody is going to unite the opposition parties here and it will be in opposition to the ANC. So, it's a bit of a cabaret, which is your next choice. Liza Minnelli, what a great singer. Here she comes. I chose that song because I sailed across a couple of oceans, and when we sailed in the morning, we would, <laughs> we would wake up to one of our crew members singing, What's the, what use is it to sit alone in your room? <laughs> and we'd be on the deck and we'd be sailing in this beautiful blue sea. Uh, it's just a wonderful thing to do. And so... I loved it. I think Liza Minnelli sings it beautifully, and I think the play, the play or the musical itself, is is a wonderful story. Have you ever seen her live? I haven't seen her live, no. no. But I I saw Cabaret in uh, um, in Germany, funny enough, with an Austrian cast, and you know it's it's a very light-hearted, lovely cabaret show until the Nazis kind of arrive, and the Nazis arrived and kicked over this Jewish guy's little um, food stall. And suddenly the curtain descended, but it just dropped, absolutely dropped, boom, not just gently came down, and not just on the stage, but in front of the stage. So it was huge, and it was just this red curtain with a black swastika just came down. The whole audience, it was a German audience, went, (gasps) as it came down. And then at interval, they said to me, oh, that was too much. They didn't have to do that. They shouldn't have frightened us like that. I mean, it was exactly what happened in Germany. Yeah, when yeah. Nazis came yeah. down. That's how they came down. Yeah. And, you know, talking of um, telling people to shut up, prime ministers, this next song uh, is Tula Baba, but in a different sense, of <laughs> course, sung by Pumezo Machikiza, uh, one of our very talented young South African singers of whom you've seen and heard many over the years so at concerts performing. Let's listen to it. Tula Baba Tula Sana. This is Pumeza Machikiza. I, I could have an entire two-hour program just of our indigenous songs because we have, produ- we have created, we've written, we have, um, I don't know what you call it, um, made these beautiful, beautiful songs. But I, there's so much else that I wanted to put on the program. Well, <laughs> and, and I couldn't put just... Now, and and beautiful them. young singers we've got from here, too, who've gone all over the world now. Well, I think you've done a lot of that, Richard, so well done. I mean, you've helped lots and lots of people. You really have been a... You, like James Clark, should be declared a national treasure, in my opinion. <laughs> um, we don't have national treasures, and we should. It would be a wonderful thing to say... These are our national treasures, and you'd be right up there at the top. Well, that's very kind. Thank you. But we're, we're sort of entering the world of the realm of fossils now uh, <laughs> because we're getting sort of on in years. And uh, that's another – I mean, that's, this is another interesting piece of music because he was really taking the mickey out of many other composers of his time, Sanson I'm talking about, who played tunes sort of at half speed or double speed or something just as he was – mocking his fellow composers. It's amazing. And this is fossils in which he was mocking himself. This is the fossils from the Carnival of the Animals. That was the fossils from the Carnival of the Animals by Camille Saint-Saëns. 
the choice of Peter Sullivan, who's my guest in People of Note. Now, sorry, I wasn't meaning to say that we're fossils in any other <laughs> sense than that we're, we're sort of, you know, the senior generation now. As a child, I used to listen to the Carnival Animals all the time in Bloemfontein, and it was with verses by Ogden Nash. I don't know if you ever heard I know it. them, yeah. I mean, he was, it's wonderful. Yeah. Camille Saint-Saëns was wrecked with pains when people addressed him as Saint Saints. So it started. I mean, it was lovely. Yeah, and uh, strangely enough, he, he wouldn't allow a lot of the music to be performed in his lifetime because he thought it would offend people, I think. So he just, the only one that was performed was the swan, which is beautiful. Yeah. But, but once he uh, died, then, of course, it could be performed a lot. And we're sort of coming to the end of the program now, and your final choice. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for making the time to come in and talk to us. I've loved it. Thank you. It's been great. Um, and you've certainly uh, created a niche for yourself in South Africa as who you are and what you've done. And you've done a lot, a huge amount. I mean, talk of national treasures, you've done an, an enormous amount. And I know you said earlier that you are not an ambitious person, but you are quite sort of famous within South Africa, certainly in the journalistic field and in many others as well. And your final choice is about fame. And if you had something that you wanted to be remembered by, what, what would it be? Well, it's difficult. I've I've always said I don't necessarily want to be remembered. Yeah. I think uh, I think good editors are famous in their day, but uh, once they leave, people remember them for a few days, and when they die, only their family attend their funerals. Right? They do say editors are born with a silver dagger in their back. <laughs> <laughs> I think for the fact that when we went into the transition, the star maintained that the election would happen, it would be good. South Africa would not go into civil war. There would not, it would not all be dreadful. And we were the only newspaper that did that really around the world. I mean, we were all the other newspapers, even the South African newspapers were predicting chaos and crisis and war. We didn't. We kept the line at a very difficult time. And, uh, for which I think Nelson Mandela was very grateful as well. He and I became very good friends. And um, and I think maybe that's – I'm not quite sure, Richard. Yeah. Well, it's a wonderful thing to be – have been part of, I must say, and we often talk about this at home, how we've lived through the most incredible history here and in the world, I think. Uh, it's been an amazing time to be alive. Well, we have taken people out of poverty, and I yeah. think that's really what our generation has done is that we have taken people, I mean, the, the Chinese have done it best of all. They've taken 800 million people out of poverty. No. But we are busy doing it in South Africa. We are, I mean, things have changed enormously from yeah. when we grew up as privileged white people in this country. And now people are more equal. Nobody's ever going to be, everybody is not equal and never will be. But nonetheless, that equality is starting to yeah. happen, to get better. And for this, we say thank you to you and to people like you who've done this work in newspapers because newspapers in their time and still online now have been a very important uh, element in keeping us all sort of, you know, toes to the line and, and leading us where we should go. Keep the politicians' yeah. feet to the fire. That's Absolutely. what we need to do. 
So thank you very much for that. And thanks again for being on the show. Your final choice, Fame by Emma Kershaw. That was Fame uh, featuring Emma Kershaw. The final choice of Peter Sullivan, who's been my guest in People of Note. And thanks to you, Peter, very much indeed for coming on. Thank you, Richard. I really have enjoyed it. I mean, during this lockdown, it's wonderful to get out. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks to Matabataba Khadebe, who's helped us put the program together. And, of course, thank you all at home for listening. This program is broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8. I'll be back during the week with the full works. But, of course, I'll be back next Sunday with another great guest in People of Note. So, until then, from all of us here at Classic 1027, we wish you a very good night.